0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Poems That Kill, the Black Arts Movement. Suppose James Brown read Fanon. This thought experiment was evoked by Larry Neal. In a posthumously published essay, as he looked back on a special wave of poetry, drama, and other forms of art produced by African Americans in the late 1960s and early 1970s, Neil was himself a poet and wrote a seminal essay in 1968 that gave this distinctive artistic flourishing its name, the Black Arts Movement. And imagining a version of James Brown who was into Fanon is not a bad way to start thinking about what the Black Arts Movement was all about. Like the broader Black power movement that we've been covering in recent episodes, the Black arts movement was inspired by the thought of such thinkers as Fanon and Malcolm X, and also by the riches of contemporary Black American culture, especially music. Neal said that he and others at the time considered James Brown to be a magnificent poet, although more than anything about his lyrics, it was really the sound of the hardest working man in show business that inspired poets like Neal. They were gripped by new developments in rhythm and blues, like the Motown sound and the birth of funk, and they were also greatly influenced by the avant-garde jazz of such musicians as John Coltrane, Pharoah Sanders, and Sun Ra. In his reminiscence, Neil says of 1960s jazz, we laid on this sound a certain kind of attitude and meaning. We said it was out of the African mode and it was revolutionary. It was formalistically revolutionary. It broke with all of the previous ways of improvisation. Commentators on what Neil and others at the time called the black aesthetic saw African-American music as the vanguard reflection of Black feeling and the continuous repository of Black consciousness. And poets who sought to realize that aesthetic deliberately sought to capture this feeling in words. Don L. Lee, who eventually changed his name to Haki Marubuti, was a significant author in the movement who said that poetry like his was an extension of Black music. Larry Neal put the challenge like this. Listen to James Brown scream. Ask yourself then, Have you ever heard a Negro poet sing like that? The riffs of a song like Cold Sweat were said to evoke racial memory, and Black musicians in general were said to carry on the indigenous African tradition of the priest philosopher. Arguably the most significant and celebrated poet of the movement was the man known once upon a time as Leroy Jones, but known throughout most of the period relevant to this episode as Imamu Amiri Baraka. We first mentioned him in our episode on Ralph Ellison, noting Ellison's criticism of his 1963 book, Blues People. In a 1966 essay on the new Black music, that is the avant-garde jazz of the time, Baraka too invoked the concept of racial memory and said that Black music is African in origin, African-American in its totality. The sound of an artist like James Brown was a place where Black people live, where they could move in almost absolute openness and strength. Baraka believed in the potential of the new Black music to represent in its innovation the emergence of the new people, the black people, conscious of all their strength, in a unified portrait of strength, beauty, and contemplation. Or, as he put it in language that makes it obvious both how philosophical his perspective is, and the fact that he was writing in 1966, the goal was a more complete existence, that is, the digging of everything. It might seem that Baraka and others were digging in ground that was already pretty well excavated, Decades earlier, the authors of the Harlem Renaissance had already sought to capture a historically rooted black culture in literary form. They'd even been centrally inspired by music, though in the 1920s that meant Louis Armstrong and Ma Rainey, not James Brown or John Coltrane. But members of the black arts movement aimed to outdo the achievements of the Harlem Renaissance. Madhubuti and Neal viewed that earlier artistic flowering as superficial, even essentially a failure because it did not connect sufficiently with the wider black population. In general, they condemned much earlier black writing as conceding too much to the majority white culture. When doing this, they often looked back past the Harlem Renaissance, all the way to Phyllis Wheatley, the pioneering female poet of revolutionary era America. In 1972, literary critic Addison Gale Jr. put together The Black Aesthetic, an anthology that is similar in its importance to that of Alan Locke's The New Negro for the Harlem Renaissance. In a piece of his own, included in the anthology, Gale charged that, in the main, black writers have traveled the road of Phyllis Wheatley, meaning that they have negated or falsified their racial experiences. Gale was critical, not primarily of her imitation of white poets like Alexander Pope, but rather her failure, in his view, to use the poetic form she took from English neoclassicism to call a new nation into being. Another essay by Baraka, The Myth of a Negro Literature, makes the point in a way that mirrors Neil's uncomplimentary comparison between most black poets and James Brown. Evoking the singing of people whose names we will never know, Baraka wrote that Phyllis Wheatley and her pleasant imitations of 18th century English poetry are far and, finally, ludicrous departures from the huge black voices that splintered southern nights. In our own look at Wheatley, way back in episode 33, we argued for a more generous judgment of her work, But these remarks do give us an insight into the agenda of poets like Baraka and critics like Gale. They were reacting against a tendency among Black writers of the mid-20th century, directly preceding the Black Power era, a recurring demand to be judged by the same criteria that were applied to white artists. Even in 1966, a celebrated author like Robert Hayden could win the Grand Prize for Poetry at the First World Festival of Negro Arts, organized in Senegal by Leopold Senghor, but then insist that the Fisk Black Writers Conference held the same year, that he was not a black poet, but just a poet. This was a striking echo of the position taken by the young poet mentioned by Langston Hughes in his essay, The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain, back during the time of the Harlem Renaissance. You might remember that Hughes harshly criticized the young man, generally assumed to be County Cullen, for saying, I want to be a poet, not a Negro poet. The black arts movement took up Hughes's criticism of this position with gusto, disavowing the ambition to make universal art aimed at a maximally general audience. Their self-conscious goal was instead to produce Black art for Black people. Hoyt Fuller was an important organizer of the movement, especially by virtue of editing the popular magazine Negro Digest, renamed during his time The Black World. In an essay of his entitled Towards a Black Aesthetic, first published in 1968 and naturally included in Gale's The Black Aesthetic, Fuller questioned the supposedly universal value of an author like Shakespeare. Citing Fanon, Fuller argued that, in the time of revolutionary struggle, the traditional Western liberal ideals are not merely irrelevant, but they must be assiduously opposed. Fuller also discusses in this essay a review by a white critic of the poetry of Gwendolyn Brooks, on whom more later. In the reviewer's claim that, if being a Negro is the only subject, the writing is not important, Fuller diagnoses, the plain but unstated assumption being, of course, that there are no universal values and no universal implications in Negro life. From Fuller's point of view, if the Black artist should pursue universality at all, then it should be by delving into the special character and imperatives of Black experience. A similar idea was expressed in the mission statement of the journal Soul Book, launched in 1964. Contributors to the publication would strive to give the most meaningful understanding of what blackness is, yet the results should be understood by any human being. Adam David Miller went further still and proposed laying the idea of universal to rest. Some of us, he wrote, keep feeling that to be black is not to be universal, and to be black is to be limited. Why is black such a limiting idea? Similarly, Baraka, just after his criticism of Phyllis Wheatley, wrote, High art, and by this I mean any art that would attempt to describe or characterize some portion of the profound meaningfulness of human life with any finality or truth, cannot be based on the superficialities of human existence. It must issue from real categories of human activity. Of course, this meant that the artists of the black arts movement needed to be black themselves. Harold Cruz tells the story of a debate at the Harlem Black Arts Repertory Theater and School, or BARTs, set up by Baraka, while he was still known as Leroy Jones, in 1965. The question arose whether white actors would be allowed to perform in the plays put on by the theater. A young actor argued no. If there were to be white characters, then let them be played by black actors wearing makeup. Not a surprising attitude, given its founder's description of his aims in setting up Bart's, White men will cower before this theater because it hates them. The revolutionary theater must teach them their deaths. Over in Chicago, similar cultural efforts were being made by the Organization of Black American Culture, or OBAC, with Hoyt Fuller again in a leading role. The first poet to perform there, Amis Moore, left the group because he believed in universality and did not want to exclude non-black artists. Meanwhile, Madhubuti, himself an important contributor to the Chicago scene, wrote, A true test for a black poem is whether you can tell the author's color, From this, we can see that while there was concern about who was producing the art, the point was not that success is achieved as long as the art is produced by someone Black. A Black writer might fail to write an obviously Black poem, and this would indeed in their view be a failure. It should be obvious by now why Larry Neal called the Black Arts Movement the aesthetic and spiritual sister of the Black Power concept, although one scholar has provocatively pointed out that one could just as well call Black Power the political wing of the Black Arts Movement. Neal argued that both movements expressed a desire for self-determination and nationhood, and that in fact they were inextricably intertwined, since your ethics and your aesthetics are one. From this it followed that the art of the movement should not just express the black experience, it should support the revolutionary struggle being waged by armed militants like the Black Panthers. Neil cites Baraka's famous poem, Black Art, which proclaimed, We want poems that kill, poems that shoot guns. We want a black poem and a black world it would be putting it mildly to say that the art of the movement was critical of white America. In the introduction to the black aesthetic, Addison Gale said that the black artist in the American society who creates without interjecting a note of anger is creating not as a black man, but as an American. He went on to say that embracing Americanness would mean giving up on black heritage and culture. Indeed, he went so far as to remark that to be an American is to lose one's humanity. Not to be outdone, Baraka once remarked that To be an American, one must be a murderer, a white murderer of colored people. Baraka put his political activism where his mouth was across a career that featured dramatic public changes of perspective and position. He was born Everett Leroy Jones in Newark, New Jersey, and that's Leroy with a Y. He capitalized the R and replaced the Y with an I while studying at Howard University in the early 1950s. By the time of his next name change, he had already made a name for himself as a poet, playwright, and cultural commentator, living in Greenwich Village and associated with the so-called Beat Generation. An early source of politicization was his trip to Cuba in 1960, during which he spent time with Robert F. Williams. Also, along with Maya Angelou, he took part in a famous protest at the United Nations after the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. It was, however, the assassination of Malcolm X that inspired the first major transformation of Leroy Jones. He left his white wife, Hetty Jones, with whom he had two children, and moved back to his hometown of Newark. He began using the name Amir Barakat, which means blessed prince in Arabic. This name was bestowed on him by none other than the Islamic cleric who buried Malcolm X. It evolved into the Swahili name Amir Baraka under the influence of the subject of our last episode, Malana Karenga. It is Karenga who gave him the title imamu, meaning spiritual leader. Baraka soon became a prominent community activist in Newark, which he punningly called a new ark. He believed the city could be a model for Black political power that could inspire the rest of the country, proclaiming, we will nationalize the city's institutions as if it were liberated territory in Zimbabwe or Angola. His Black nationalist politics complemented his views on the purpose of Black art, which was, in Karenga's words, to respond positively to the reality of revolution. This was a revolution to be fought on U.S. soil. Baraka did not take seriously the idea of a literal return to Africa even as he advocated such a return at the level of artistic imagination. With a typical fusion of humor and philosophical ambition, he remarked, Black people, circa 1970, ain't going anywhere. It is very difficult, as you well know, to get them to go up the street to a meeting. We must separate the mind, win the mind, wage the revolution to win the Black man's mind, so we will begin to move together as a people conscious that we are a people, struggling for national liberation. In the words of a James Brown album title, This was to be a revolution of the mind, in which political advances came together with advances in art and ideas. Despite his frequently bellicose tone and numerous run-ins with the police, Baraka thought that political advances could be secured through democratic means, at least in heavily black urban areas, dubbed Chocolate Cities by Parliament Funkadelic, another musical act of the period. When Baraka was asked in the late 60s why he was trying to restrain violent rioting in Newark, he said, the city is ours anyway. We can take it with balance. His hopes for a peaceful political revolution encountered a setback when the mayor he helped to get elected in Newark failed, in his view, to help the black community. Like Malcolm before him, Baraka increasingly turned to a broader vision of pan-African and even global unity against white oppression. American power over Africans around the world, he said, must be broken before the other colonial powers are completely broken. By 1976, Baraka adopted a Marxist outlook repudiating the form of black nationalism that inspired him throughout the time of the black arts movement. He came to see black people in the U.S., and thanks to American hegemony around the world, as an oppressed class as well as an oppressed race. Looking back at the black arts period with this later perspective, Baraka said that the movement became embroiled in cultural nationalism, bourgeois nationalism, substituting mistrust and hatred of white people for scientific analysis of the real enemies of black people, until by the middle 70s, a dead end had been reached that could only be surmounted by a complete change of worldview. The worldview in question being, of course, a Marxist or a socialist one. This makes sense as a reconstruction of Baraka's own intellectual development, but it may underestimate the sophistication of the political critiques already issued by the artists of the movement. Giving voice to the black experience was not just an end in itself, but a way to call attention to the corruption, hypocrisy, and oppressiveness of American society. As Sarah Webster Fabio put it already in 1971, the art of the movement was bringing Black perspective, Black aesthetic, Black rhetoric, Black language, to add authenticity to the felt reality. Knowing America has no rhetoric matching its racist reality, no reality matching its universal and democratic idealistic state of existence. This brings us back to to the revolutionary and philosophical character of the poetry of the black arts movement. As Hoyt Fuller asserted, the black revolt is as palpable in letters as it is in the streets. Reflecting on a verse by Eugene Perkins, the Congo villages stand unclaimed under the shadows of grotesque tenements and the towering concrete of welfare prisons, Madhubuti wrote, it is Fanon and Nkrumah, it is Lumumba, Du Bois and Stokely, all squeezed and purified in four simple lines. In this same essay, he commented on the aesthetic properties of Black art's poetry. It was, by Western standards, non-communicative, obscene, profane, or vulgar. In short, it's the language of the street, charged so as to heighten the sensitivity level of the reader. The same features were noticed by less favorable critics, as in an article published in 1975 in the Saturday Review, which lamented these poems' free use of obscenities, ghetto slang, phonetic spellings, typographical hijinks, and a tone of voice pitched at megaphone level. Like some of the music of the period, such writing was intended to evoke life on the street of black neighborhoods, in both its language and its themes. Neal later pointed out that this street style was especially associated with poets in northern cities, and he drew a parallel to the way Malcolm X's fiery rhetoric was aimed primarily at an urban audience, whereas the soaring, gospel-inflected speeches of King were at home in the rural south. This makes good sense of texts like Asciatore's lines, I'm not an invisible man, my anger stalks on ghetto legs. Note the allusion to Ellison's novel there, as well as the explicit mention of life in the ghetto. While anger was indeed a dominant note, there were also hints of satire, as in Madhubuti's poem, But He Was Cool, a parody of an ultra-black guy with a double natural. His dashikis were tailor-made and his beads were imported seashells from some black country I never heard of. He was triple hip. He would greet you in Swahili and say goodbye in Yoruba. It's frequently observed that this sort of poetry benefits from being read aloud, given its vivid use of vernacular language. Indeed, the work was often intended for performance at events put on by the various organizations within the black arts movement. But the orality of black arts poetry should not be overemphasized. One of the most important vehicles for the movement was a proliferation of literary journals. We already mentioned Black World and Soul Book, and could add the names of Freedom Ways, The Liberator, and Umbra, whose mission statement again stressed the importance of articulating the experience of being Negro, especially in America. Poems of the movement did have a distinctive sound, best conveyed by live performance, but they also frequently exploited visual effects on the page, Using ellipses, unorthodox, even unpronounceable spelling, and formatting. A nice example, though one hard to appreciate in podcast form, is Life Poem by Sonia Sanchez. Shall I die a sweet death, a sweet black death? Move into Killing Hood for my people, for my beautiful black people. Here, the word black is spelled without vowels, words are connected by slashes and the phrases are lined up with one another in potentially meaningful ways. They are also scattered across the page, so that literally white space surrounds Sanchez's urgently threatened black people. In keeping with the musical obsessions of the movement, Sanchez also wrote an amazing poem about John Coltrane that attempts to capture his music using typography and onomatopoeia. Though widely celebrated for such aesthetic achievements, the black arts movement has often been critiqued for retrograde attitudes when it came to topics other than race. Baraka's poetry contains passages of ugly anti-Semitism, and he and other male poets were often guilty of, at best, writing from a male point of view, and at worst, rank sexism. No serious account can mistake the movement for being an all-male affair, though, given how many prominent women authors were involved. In addition to Sonia Sanchez, whom we just quoted, There were figures like Carolyn Rogers, Jane Cortez, Nikki Giovanni, and the elder stateswoman of the movement, Gwendolyn Brooks. Having already won a Pulitzer Prize way back in 1950 for a collection of poems called Annie Allen, Brooks contributed prominently to this late 1960s flourishing. Her epic poem In the Mecca, published in 1968, follows the story of a murder in a housing estate, the titular Mecca, and alludes to her various influences from Claude McKay of the Harlem Renaissance, to Leopold Senghor of the Negritude Movement, to fellow Chicagoan participants of the Black Arts Movement, like Madhubuti. Using what was still his name at the time, she writes, Don Lee wants a new nation under nothing, wants new art and anthem, will want a new music screaming in the sun. Madhubuti himself could be charged with sometimes viewing Black women from a reductively male perspective. In one of his poems, he wrote, Black woman is an in-and-out, ride-side-up action image of her man, In other, blacker words, she's together if he bees. More disturbingly, Baraka complained in one of his poems of the way that women were prone to undermine the black artist, the holy, holy black man. It should not be assumed that women poets of the movement always responded by criticizing the gender hierarchy implicit in such works. Nikki Giovanni, for example, was on record as prioritizing racial oppression above gender oppression. She said that black people consider their first reality to be black, and given that reality, we know from birth that we are going to be oppressed—man, woman, or eunuch. Yet she also dedicated work to the much-maligned Phyllis Wheatley and celebrated female musicians like Lena Horne in her Poem for a Lady Whose Voice I Quite Like. She also attacked the militarism and ideological litmus tests of men like Baraka, saying, we should follow the simple formula that every black person is a potential vote and must be welcomed and treated as such, with or without dashiki, with or without natural. As the underlying theory of the movement demanded, Giovanni wrote from her own distinctively Black experience, as in the poem Nikki Rosa. Its concluding lines read, I really hope no white person ever has cause to write about me, because they never understand Black love is Black wealth, and they'll probably talk about my hard childhood, and never understand that all the while I was quite happy she lent her voice to the political agenda of the movement too, as in, a historical footnote to consider only when all else fails. Again, it's worth quoting the final lines of this poem, so let us work for our day of presence when Stokely is in the Black House and all will be right with our world. Parliament's song Chocolate City would later feature a similar political fantasy, President Muhammad Ali, with Stevie Wonder as Secretary of Fine Arts and Aretha Franklin, First Lady. These were calls for Black power, but with a dash of wit. In the same spirit, Sonia Sanchez satirized the empty grandstanding of some Black activists in her poem, Black Rhetoric. Who's going to make all that beautiful Black rhetoric mean something? Like, I mean, who's going to take the words, Black is beautiful, and make more of it than Black capitalism? This would indeed be a fair standard for judging the whole Black arts movement, whose exponents so loudly proclaimed the vital political importance of what they were doing. Some might be skeptical about whether avant garde poetry was really a fearsome weapon in the cause of revolution. Yet the publications and theatrical performances of the movement did genuinely reach a wide audience. For example, in 1972, Fuller's Black World Journal had more than 20,000 subscribers and was available at newsstands all over the country. Moreover, the artists of the movement have shaped black artistic sensibilities right down to the present day, not least by refusing to divorce aesthetic from political concerns. As we can read in a set of resolutions penned by Neal for a creativity workshop held in Atlanta, art for art's sake is an invalid concept. Art reflects the value system from which it comes. It is the charge of the artist to create, preserve, promote, and perpetuate these values through art. Art must speak to and inspire Black people. Speaking of inspiration, there's another cultural arena where the distinctive concerns of Black America were being taken up around this time. Religion. Of course it's nothing new to see Christianity being tightly bound up with Africana philosophy. That was true of nearly all the figures we considered in the 18th and 19th centuries. But how was this long-standing aspect of black thought and culture transformed by the black power movement? We will explore this next time with thinkers like James Cone and William R. Jones. Female thinkers will play a significant role too, as they did in this episode, since we'll also consider the strand within black theology called womanist theology. So, as James Brown would say, Good God. Jump back, kiss yourself, and while you're at it, get on the good foot with the next episode of The History of Africana Philosophy.